Hey, girlfriend. It's time for Can We Just Talk About This? Where real talk meets real life in the world of fitness and health during perimenopause. I'm nutrition, strength, and hormone coach Corey Jackson, and I'm chatting with my brilliant friend, coach and exercise physiologist Dr. Mandy Para. Whether you're in your 50s like me or your 30s like Mandy, we're here to navigate the ever-evolving journey of life, motherhood, and perimenopause together. So pull up a seat, get comfy, and let's talk about this. Hey, girlfriend. Today, Mandy and I introduce a topic that we as nutrition and exercise subject matter experts feel is important, and that's learning how to read a scientific paper and also interpret it and how to apply critical thinking when you hear about the research being reported in the media. So this is the example I like to use. Let's face it, feeding yourself and your family in a healthy manner shouldn't be rocket science. But where it gets complicated is when you try to decipher nutrition science from the news reports, from influencers on social media, from podcasters, present company included. Look, you're busy and your brain is filled with the knowledge that it takes to be an expert in your field. When I taught undergraduate students in the nutrition department at my alma mater who were studying to become registered dietitians, I would tell them that we were becoming nutrition professionals, experts, so that we could help experts in other fields, you, learn how to live a healthy life. Today's episode kind of goes along those lines. In today's episode, which is really the first part of this conversation, Mandy, who teaches undergraduate students how to read scientific studies, shows us a brilliant illustration. It's the hero's journey. You'll recognize it right away. Long ago, in a galaxy far, far away, Professor Mandy takes me through the different sections of a scientific paper. And we also talk about storytelling in scientific literature and how it's really shall we say, different than in popular literature. Today is really an introduction to the second and meatier part of our conversation, which will be released next Monday in episode nine. In that part, we discuss two pretty interesting papers and hopefully help you understand them and what they can mean to you as a midlife woman. Because I know (laughs) that with all the differing and loud opinions about hormone therapy for the menopause transition, it can be a difficult decision to make whether or not you use it. You'll want to catch us next week to hear about two studies that looked at MHT's relationship to varying types of dementia. All right, let's get to it. How are you doing, girlfriends? I hope that you're finding yourself happy in wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing. Mandy and I are here in Central Texas in the middle of a cold snap, and it is in my opinion, glorious. <laughs> but I'm hearing from Mandy that she's just struggling to stay warm. Is that right? Uh, we are chilly. We are chilly over here. We we did trick-or-treating last night. It's the first time we've trick-or-treated in Texas in the cold. Ooh, for sure. So that was, <laughs> that was fun. That was fun. 
It was different. We had houses with fire pits in their driveways <laughs> waiting right. for kids to come. That was pretty cool. So today we wanted to talk about something that I think is important and we both agree is important and also something that is a little harder to do whenever you're an expert in your own field and it's not science. And that is to read and parse out and understand a scientific study. That's important to you because so much of our scientific literature is interpreted to you through scientific journalism. You really can't trust everything you hear in the media. Shocker, I know, but you need to be able to apply some critical thinking to everything that you hear in the media. I will never forget hearing this message from a longtime military veteran. He had been in several wars and we were talking to him about one of the wars that was going on and at current at that time. And he said, he told us you need, in order to find the real story, you need to pay attention to what's going on behind the story. And he was talking about what's going on actually behind the journalist rather than what the journalist is saying, but he was also talking about everything that's going on in the background. And I tend to equate science to that uh, because scientific journalists have a tendency to grab the things that are attention getting, the things that are gonna get clicks, right? And that's probably the case for any area of journalism. But in order for you to really understand what is good for you, you need to be able to understand what's going on behind what the journalist is saying. So we wanted to talk about how to read a scientific paper because trust me, it's like a completely different language. <laughs> and learning how to write as a scientist was the hardest part of my undergraduate and graduate career, especially my graduate career as I was writing a, my graduate thesis. So. We wanted to talk about that. First off, since Mandy is still teaching undergraduate students how to read scientific papers, I was going to hand it off to her and let her take us through exactly how she teaches her undergraduate students to read a paper. And then after she goes through that, we have selected two different papers that both have to do with the impacts of menopause hormone therapy on risk of Alzheimer's disease later on in life. And they both come from opposite sides. One says that MHT is protective and the other one says that MHT is causative, or I think the authors wanted to say that, and we'll talk about that also. And then we'll look at both of those in the lens of scientific journalism and what you probably have heard from different people talking about the studies. Take it away, Professor Mandy. All right. So this is the way that I start to talk about scientific literature in some of my undergraduate classes, because I get very excited about scientific literature of, of all types, really, but um, especially of nutrition and exercise science. And I serve as a referee or as a peer reviewer for several different journals. And so I'm used to really reading, analyzing, and breaking down these scientific communications. And so I really made it into almost a game and a storytelling venture when I start to look at a new article. And I use this formula when I talk to my especially newer students in exercise physiology about reading a paper. I think one of the big things to understand right off the bat is that there's this little formula for most scientific communications. Most of the time you're going to see an introduction. So you'll see the intro 
And that's uh, really the background behind it. And I'll, I'll break this down a little bit further in a second, but you'll see an intro background. Then you'll see a methods and a method section is going to communicate to another researcher exactly how they did their protocol, all the things that they did, and hopefully it can be replicated. So the goal of a method section is for somebody to take that method section, take it to their own laboratory and do the same thing and get the same outcome, similar outcomes, different subjects. Isn't that an important piece of the scientific method? It is. It's a very important piece of the scientific method because you want your methodology to be able to be replicated. You want your results to be replicated in any situation. And that really just proves the validity and reliability of your methodology. So perfect important piece to have in yeah. there. those methods and methods are usually described in detail. So that's one of your really heavy um, kind of science communication pieces. Okay. And if methods is heavy science communication and methodology, then your results section is going to be your really heavy math, if that makes sense. So that's going to tell us without a whole lot of fluff and really a true results section should be zero fluff, all mathematical formulation. It should be just straight numbers. And in that, you're going to see a lot of things called p-value, which is your significance, how significant your results were or were not. You're going to see some correlations. You're going to see things like confidence intervals, the statistical power in the analysis, things like that. And really, if you're brand new to reading scientific communications, that may be the either the last thing that you read that you come back and look at, or it may be something that you look and reference back at. If you don't have any statistical training, then looking at a results section is going to feel very overwhelming look very confusing and be something that might even turn you off to finishing reading the paper. Oh, kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I was mentioning earlier that I took statistics like I took three different forms of statistics in my 10 years in college. And even then I had someone else write the results section because I don't get statistics. I don't get it. <laughs> so, yeah, it's really yeah. tough. It really is. And so I think that for most people, I say skip over that. If there are some pieces that you're interested in, look back and let's look at that section of statistics that were significant. How significant were they? It should actually say in the in the discussion how significant they were. So you should be able to have some frame of reference for it. Again, might be something that you skip over, look back at later. But so we've got intro methods, results, then you'll have a discussion section. And really the discussion section is where you take the results. A good writer is going to take that results section and they're going to place the first sentence of statistical results down in that discussion and then they're going to interpret it for you. The, it's going okay. to tell you what's significant. They're going to tell you what's not significant. They're going to Put a frame of reference around it. They're going to cite relevant literature that either agrees with or disagrees with what that statistical analysis said. And then they're going right. to move to the next statistical result in the results section, and they're going to discuss it further in the discussion. So okay. it should really tease out very nicely and methodically the results section in the discussion section. Okay. Now you mentioned that you take your students through the hero's journey when you're teaching them how to read a paper. Could you take us through that? Yeah. So if you're familiar with the hero's journey, the hero's journey is really a formulation for storytelling. 
So that's from Joseph Campbell, and Joseph Campbell is a very prolific writer, communicator, and this hero's journey that he has developed is really how we direct modern-day storytelling. The hero's journey, if you'll imagine just this giant circle, and we'll start the hero's journey at the very top. We'll start the hero on his journey, and what happens is on the hero's journey, the hero starts out and says, I have a call to adventure. I have something, some great disturbance that needs to be, that needs to be righted or it needs right. to be won or right. I have something inside of me that needs to change. Mm-hmm. So I always mm-hmm. use the long, long ago in a galaxy far away. <laughs> I was just thinking about that. Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. There's a disturbance in the force, right? Exactly. So Luke feels this calling. He feels this great disturbance in the force and this call to action. And he feels this call to adventure. And really, that's how I like to think about the introduction and background of a paper. You're going to see okay. the writer really write out long ago in a galaxy far away, there was a a motor unit discrepancy between men and women. That led me to thoughts of, I wonder how much males and females differentiate in motor unit activity in high intensity contractions, right? There's Mm -hmm. only a few Mm -hmm. subset of people that are going to have that wondering, but you'll cite relevant literature in the back. You'll decide why it's important and you'll try to convince your reader that, hey, this is an important call to action. Here's all the literature in the background. Here's where the direction is going. And now we get to what's called um, the threshold and that threshold between known and unknown. So imagine your circle, your hero is starting to walk down the edge of the circle and they get about to the halfway point. And this is the threshold from the known to the unknown. So we're going to venture from the known in our background and our introduction into the valley of the unknown, where we're going to say, here's the methodology and here are the things that I want to put forth to make a better self-discovery in this action. We're starting to really unfold from the known to the unknown, really where we want to go. And hopefully we have the rationale to do that. That's when we move to the unknown to our methods. So now I'm going to tell you exactly how I'm going to do it. We're going to go through this journey together. These are all the ways that I'm going to collect my data. These are the people that I want to recruit for my data. When they come in, I'm going to do this and this. And this is where we really start to see challenges. So in the hero's journey down towards that bottom rim of the circle, we're going to see them go through challenges, right? We see Luke face all kinds of um, encounters with Darth Vader and with um, the stormtroopers and things like that. We're going through all of these issues in data collection where we're trying to get the right sample. We're trying to get the right population. We're trying to find the right tools to measure. Are we accurately measuring what we want to measure in these outcomes? So we're going through this journey. And eventually, as we start to make our way up the backside of the circle, up the hill, we will see that journey to transformation. And really, we start to see that those are the results. So we're starting, we have outcomes, we have things that we want to present to everyone else. So we've realized that there is a change. And maybe the change is that there's no change, right? Sometimes our data, unfortunately, doesn't always give us statistical significance. Mm -hmm. So we may, the results may be, hey, there's actually no change. But that's a whole different set of the hero's journey, right? We either come back transformed, we come back, have learned either way. So I want to think about that as that discussion portion of your paper. And then as we move all the way up back around to the top of the circle, we're going to cross that threshold again from the unknown 
to the known. And now we've come back full circle, a a different person. So just like in the hero's journey, we have that call to action, that unique set of challenges that really transforms us. We come back around from the unknown to the known. So now we are back where we started, but we are a whole different human based on what we've experienced. Hopefully that's what you'll see through scientific literature, the journey of discovery of knowledge throughout an entire journey where when you finish reading that paper, you yourself should be transformed by a new thought, by a new discovery, by a new scientific methodology, if nothing else, to have a new version of yourself. So that's the conclusions of the paper. And usually the conclusions of the paper are quite small but it should tell you a little bit better how you can scientifically interpret what has happened in that paper. That is such a an effective tool to communicate that. And, and I'm thinking, I'm seeing the entire trilogy, the, the original trilogy, oh, right? <laughs> in the first one, Luke is called to answer the call. Leia sends a message to him and to Obi-Wan Kenobi and they answer the call and they enter into all of these issues. You see the trash compactor room where Han (laughs) and Leia are almost crushed and Luke fighting Darth and, and Obi-Wan basically sacrifices himself. And then, but then they still come up successful when they blow up the Death Star. So that is when positive results. Yes. Our, our treatment yielded a significant result. And so they all go to the party and then there's all of the Star Wars music and the dancing and the different hairdo on Princess Leia. (laughs) But then the most important part, right? (laughs) Absolutely. It is. And then on the, in return of the Jedi, there was not this clear cut victory and his the hero's journey took him into training with Yoda and took him into a vision that he saw himself defeating Darth. But whenever he chopped off Darth Vader's head, he sees his head in the helmet. And um, so this is all confusing. And that reminds me of my experience with scientific exploration, taking over someone else's study. And it was murky. It was confusing. Even the advisor was driven to cussing quite a few (laughs) times because it was, it just got so messy. A big piece of scientific writing, like you mentioned, is being able to craft a story and to be able to communicate what it is you are studying, why it's important to study and exactly how your study and your results fit in the entire body of the scientific literature. So a lot of what I did, I took it and I massaged it into a different direction than I think that um, anyone ever really did. And it was enough to get my, to graduate, it was enough to get my thesis approved. But in order to publish that paper, they had to go back and redo some of the analysis and they published it as we found no results or null results, which means that there was no significant difference in the treatment. And so I think of that as at the end of um, Return of the Jedi, there is no real victory. They limped away, licking their wounds. Han Solo was sold to the bounty hunter and frozen, and Luke lost his hand. And so there was that's a null result, I would think. But then they came back and won again in the next one, which, honest, okay, true, full disclosure here, I have yet to be able to stay awake through the entire 
viewing of Return of the Jedi. I haven't. <laughs> and I live in a family of ridiculous sci-fi Star Wars lovers. And it just, they are just shocked at me. Mom, you fell asleep again. So disappointed. <laughs> so disappointed. And I would, I would almost posit that no results we just talked about that. No results are a completely different piece of the puzzle. And I would go as far as to say it's just as important to publish negative results as it is to publish positive results. And we're missing a piece of the scientific method when we don't do that. When we talk about some of the problems in scientific reporting, I think it's important to see that science has gone through these machinations of how can we make science sexy? And a lot of researchers only publish positive results so that they can get their stuff published so they can get paid. And that I think is a flaw in where science has gone. It's getting better, as I'm sure you could say, Mandy, because you are a reviewer. So you're involved in that whole peer review process that tends to control what gets published and what doesn't. Could you speak to that a little bit? And I'm throwing this at you ad lib, but. No, I love it. I would say that it's important, first of all, for, for scientists to make sure that when they're doing scientific communication and writing that they are telling a story, that they are making a compelling and exciting, engaging story for their data. Because I think as a scientist, we get caught up in, I'm, I don't, I'm not a writer. I don't want to be fluffy. Mm -hmm. I need to be concise and I need to be articulate and maybe even getting overly wordy sometimes with how we speak. So I think it's important. So as I'm reading scientific communications and refereeing some of these for some of these peer reviewed journals, I always look for a good writer. I look for a good story. I look for these things within. I think that it's important to speak about non-significant results because non-significance is significant. I would also say in my line of study and exercise physiology and even nutritional intervention and things like that, sometimes the significance, so a significance of 0.05 is usually what we use, but what if we have a non-significant result but the performance effect that we're getting from it is still really good. Is it something that a coach could implement? Maybe it doesn't have a statistically significant impact, but maybe it has a practical impact for mm. athletes or coaches mm-hmm. that they can implement and get most of their athletes even 5% better. Because at, at that point, if we're increasing performance by 5%, hey, We're doing something good. So I I think that that there's sometimes um, more practical application in maybe non-significant results. And we still need to pay attention to those things. Yeah. Yeah. And that touches on the difference between academic exercise physiology versus real world application that I'm sure you and I both have uncovered in our coaching practices. It can be a completely different thing because in When you're applying this to elite athletes and teams of elite athletes to get that 5% difference, that's huge. That makes a big difference. When you're trying to apply that to real life, everyday average people, moms, professionals, people that are expert in other things, and they just want, they want a 5% edge in performance in their lives, but not necessarily in a sport. That that's, I think that you can see the difference in application versus study. 
when you look at it like that. And I know that's not exactly what you were talking about, but that's a debate that goes on among trainers versus academic science. And there are lots of trainers that have made huge careers and places for themselves in the internet. This is their their persona, that everything is scientifically based. And they, they go back and forth between the squat is king. No, the hip thrust is king. <laughs> and what you really have to think about is what is... F- a free will person that is, you have them for an hour, maybe two hours a week, and they're living their own life for 168 hours, not even thinking about you, what is going to make the biggest difference for them? And sometimes it's not what the papers say. Yes. It's an important piece, and that's great to bring up. And I think that on the other side of that, when you're deciding who to listen to and what to listen to in scientific communication, I think that it's always important to go back to the source. So mm-hmm. I see a lot of especially celebrity trainers and internet personalities discuss an article because they want to pull out something very specific in co- that was said in, and say X, Y, Z, because it fits the narrative of their training program mm-hmm. in some mm-hmm. capacity. And when they do that, they're definitely, they do a disservice to the paper and the scientific yes. right facts behind yeah. it because they spin the facts to say what they want them to say to fit their own narrative. So I would always recommend that when it, when you hear a trainer say this study said, whatever it said, I would really encourage you to go to PubMed, go pull up that study, go look at what the actual conclusions mm-hmm. of the study said, because mm-hmm. in scientific communication, we cannot ex- over-extrapolate results and over-apply results that we did not find within our paper. But that's exactly what these individuals are doing. Oh, absolutely. Um, so it's really important to look at what they're talking about. And I think that in the context of what we're talking about today and really learning how to look at an article and learning that if I say certain things in my scientific communication process, so if I write something in a paper, there's a team of individuals, of peer reviewers that are going to look at it and say, hey, Mm -hmm. you can't say that. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to take out that sentence because you over extrapolated your results and you didn't actually look at that. So I have to pare it down and I can't emphasize certain aspects. Yeah. And hopefully we can teach you ladies out there how to do this for yourself so that you don't have to listen to somebody else that you can look at the articles and decide on your own. Exactly. And that's a good point because science isn't done in a vacuum. Just about every paper that you see Unless it's a, you know, most of the times even a position paper, but unless it's like an editorial is not going to be signed off by one person. Science is done by teams. Everyone on that team is responsible for at least one piece of that entire study. And at least two people are responsible for everything that ends up on that page. And then after that, you have this other filter of the peer review process. And it's more than one person that is reviewing and sending things back. And all of that is all, correct me if I'm wrong, that's mostly done anonymously, correct? It is. It's, it's double-blinded. So mm-hmm. you don't know when you get the reviewer where that paper is from and who has written it. Mm-hmm. And the writer does not know who has reviewed. You can sometimes suggest reviewers to your paper if you know someone within your field that might be good at reviewing this paper for certain specific topics if they're an expert in your specific field, but you don't reach out to that person and tell them that you added them as a reviewer and they don't know that the paper is from you. 
Gotcha. So should should still be blinded in that. Yeah, way. yeah. So that that protects against bias. There are so many different protections against bias even all the way up to the editor of each of these journals. But whenever we start getting into influencers talking about studies, I think that is grouped probably in the area of scientific journalism, because this is where people are getting the layperson. This is where yeah, Susie John, is, um, who is not a nutritionist or not an exercise physiologist or a trainer or anyone that's experienced in that. She is a IT person. Maybe she is a project manager. So she's getting her information from news outlets and social media. That's why we will harp repeatedly on and on over and over about not getting all of your information from your TikTok influencers <laughs> or, or anyone on social media. And I would even go as far as to say newspapers, CBS, any of the news outlets, even though journalism has its own set of rules, they're supposed to get some review, some balance to avo avoid bias. But I've seen so many things reported that I know about in journalism that I could tell that they left a lot out. You have to be able to go to the source, as you mentioned, look up the paper yourself on PubMed to be able to know what the truth is here. Thanks so much for talking about it with me. I sure needed the time we spent together and I hope it left you feeling good too. If you enjoyed the episode, please like subscribe and share it with your friends to bring other girlfriends into the circle. And Hey, let's do it again next week. Episodes drop every Monday, and you might even find a quick chat Friday every now and then. <laughs> <laughs>